Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series that we are doing on the book of Acts. We have come to part three in this 12-part series, a very important study in a very important portion of Scripture where we see the birth, the growth, and the development of the church. And as we've already been mentioning in this study, we don't want to just fill our heads with church history. We really want to be looking at God's Word prayerfully and really looking to the Holy Spirit to give us vision and revelation of the kind of church that He's building so that we can all be a part of that church. The word church is used very loosely in the world today, and a lot of things are called church that aren't. And we want to find out what are the marks of a true church? What does a real church look like, and how does it function, and what is my role in the true church that Jesus said he would build, and the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against. Um, just a few introductory comments, as always. We have both notes and recordings for all of these studies. They should be available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. You can also listen live each Wednesday night, either by telephone or on the Internet through mixlr.com and just search for the broadcast name of New Life Ministries. And all of the previous Bible studies are also recorded there at that website. So there are a number of different ways that you can access the recordings. Um, the best way of all, if you have a smartphone, is to subscribe to our podcast and just look for New Life Ministries and... That way you'll get all of the notes and the recordings as they're made available. They'll automatically come into your phone. So in, in whatever way you want to do it, we've made it, I think, quite easy for everyone to participate, even if you can't necessarily be with us 7.30 Wednesday evening. You can always come back later on and listen to the recordings as well as look at the notes. I strongly recommend downloading the notes and either printing them or having them available on your computer or other device to follow along because we look at many, many scripture verses and it's kind of cumbersome to be looking up all of the verses in the Bible as we uh, sometimes kind of speed along through these things. So, We've come to page 31, if you are following in the notes, and we're again in part three of this series entitled Pentecost and the Birth of the Church. And we saw last time that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, the 120 in the upper room, they all began to speak in other languages, and there were Jews present in Jerusalem at that time, most likely because of Passover and Pentecost, from all of the known nations, and they would have known many different languages from the nations that they had come from, and so supernaturally, the 
disciples and other believers that were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in those known languages, but languages that they themselves had not learned. And so these Jewish pilgrims that had come to Jerusalem were amazed to hear them speaking in their own languages. And of course, this was a sign, supernatural sign that God gave on the day of Pentecost to sort of stir the whole city of Jerusalem and get everyone's attention. And once he had their attention, they all began to gather around, and it was Peter who stood up on that day and began to preach. And we looked at the first part of his message last time, and we want to continue looking at some of the things that Peter preached in that first sermon. And more importantly, what was the response of the people listening, and what does a church look like? Because for the very first time in Acts chapter 2, we're going to see almost at the end of the chapter, the word church again appears. We haven't seen church at all since Jesus mentioned it in his conversation with Peter when he was here on earth, and he told Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He never explained what a church was or what a church looked like. He just basically said, I'm going to do it, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. So, on the day of Pentecost, after boldly preaching that Christ had been crucified and put to death by the Jews, this is a, a theme that we find throughout the book of Acts in the preaching of the apostles. They were very bold they would look right in the faces of the Jewish people and say, you killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead. And such was the case here. And then, in verse 36 of Acts 2, Peter had told the whole crowd, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Notice that. Whom you crucified, God made him Lord and Christ. And we want to pick it up right there in the heading letter F. What was the result of Peter's sermon? Now remember earlier that morning, a lot of them were mocking and laughing and saying, Ah, these guys are all drunk. That's why they're babbling like this. Well, a little bit of a different tune now in the crowd, because verse 37 tells us they were cut to the heart. As they heard Peter's words, something was going on inside of them. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. The Greek word there means to pierce thoroughly, to agitate violently, to sting to the quick, to cut or to prick. So it's like a giant wasp or a scorpion had stung them right in the heart, or almost as though a dagger 
had pierced right through the center of their being. They were pierced. They were cut by these words. And Jesus had predicted this. When he was still on earth, he spoke quite a bit about the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, whom he was going to send in his stead. Once he went back to the Father, he said, I'm going to send another paraclete, a counselor, a comforter, someone who's going to come and take over where I have left off. Well, that was the Holy Spirit. And listen in one of those passages in John chapter 16. These are the words that Christ spoke concerning the ministry of the coming Holy Spirit. John 16, verses 7 to 9. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment in regard to sin because men do not believe in me. So, this of course was when Jesus was still on earth and he's talking about a future time when I will send him to you. Well, he has now been sent. The Holy Spirit has now been sent. That happened in Acts 2 verse 4. The Holy Spirit has come. The Counselor has now arrived. And Jesus said, when he comes, this is what he's going to do. He will convict. And, you know, I like the literal meaning of that word. It's, it sounds almost the same, but it has a little bit of a different flavor. The, the word we're used to using, convict of sin or convict a criminal of a crime, but the word actually means to convince. To convince. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will convince the world of their guilt in regard to sin. That's absolutely critical. That's one of the very first things that the Holy Spirit does when He comes. And actually, that has to happen first before anything else of any real significance can take place. Because if you and I are sinners by birth, and that's what the Bible teaches, but we're not convinced of that, then we're not really convinced that we need a Savior. We're not really convinced that we need to change anything in our lives. And what we're about to see is the need for a total, radical change in the sinner's life. But, he must first be convinced that he is a sinner. And you know, it's important, I think, for me to insert right here, our job as Christians is not to convince sinners of their sin. I'll repeat that. Our job as Christians is not to convince anyone of anything. The convincing is to be done by the Holy Spirit. 
you and I will get very frustrated if we're trying to convince a loved one, a friend, a neighbor, or a co-worker who's not yet saved that they are a sinner. We can't convince them. The Holy Spirit must supernaturally operate on their heart. And I mean that word literally, operate, like a surgeon with a scalpel. He starts to cut into the heart and brings that conviction, brings that convincing that, yes, I am a sinner. Once that happens, then we can move to the next part of the story. But only then. They first had to be cut to the heart. They got that stinging feeling in the heart that, uh-oh, I'm not right. I'm a sinner. I have done things against God and against heaven that are not right. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit as Peter was sharing the message of the gospel. And in that same verse, let me read the entire verse now, Acts 2 and verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? There were a lot of questions they could have asked. What do we need to do to join the church? Uh, where are we supposed to go? Uh, what are we supposed to believe? How do we sign up? Uh, that's not what they're asking. They were so cut in the heart that all they could respond with was one question. What shall we do? And I want you to think about the mysterious way in which the Holy Spirit operates. And if you look back to the day you first got saved, you won't be able to explain it, because it's a mystery. Because it's the Holy Spirit working inside the heart that brings us to that place of conviction where we know, nobody needs to tell us, we know something dramatic has to change in our life. Some of the same ones that were earlier mocking and laughing and saying, ha ha, these guys are all drunk. They're the ones that are now pierced, convicted, broken, and all they're asking is, what do we need to do? They've now become like clay in the potter's hands. They've been humbled. They're submitted now. They want to hear some instruction. What do we need to do? And, you know, when I, when I find somebody that's still arguing and fighting and challenging, I really question whether or not this work has been done in their heart yet. Because when the Holy Spirit cuts you, I mean He just lays you out. And you're not justifying, you're not arguing, you're not fighting. You just want to know, my God, what do I have to do to get my life right? 
That was the spirit that they are now in. And Peter has an immediate answer for them. And unlike the way it would go down in a lot of modern churches, oh, well, you know, here's our visitor's booklet, and you can start attending our 10-week membership class, and we want to get all of your information, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. No. Peter fired right back. Here's what you need to do. Repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's it. He didn't have any other words initially concerning, here's how you join the church, here's a list of ten things you're supposed to believe now. None of that. What do you want to do? Here's what you need to do. Repent, take water baptism, and get filled with the Holy Spirit. Very simple. But let's break this down. First of all, repent. It's a word that's used often in the New Testament. Uh, one of the first messages out of Jesus' mouth was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word in Greek is metanoio. It means to think differently, to reconsider morally, and to feel compunction, to feel that conviction. So, it starts in the thinking. Thinking differently. Something's going on now in the mind. We're reconsidering our whole lifestyle. We're reconsidering the the direction that our life has been going in. The Amplified Bible, it reads the following, Repent. Change your views and purpose to accept the will of God in your inner selves instead of rejecting it. Notice that. Change your views, change your purpose, so that now you accept the will of God in your inner selves instead of rejecting it. And real repentance begins with this convincing that's done by the Holy Spirit that I'm a rebel. I've been rejecting God. I'm an enemy of God. I've been going against God. I've been rejecting His will and His purpose. And so where I need to start is changing my mind, changing my attitude, changing my views and my purpose, and now I'm going to accept the will of God for my life. The Message Bible is even simpler. It reads, Change your life, turn to God. I like that. Change your life, turn to God. Notice the question again. What shall we do? They realized something that we're doing is wrong. And so we need to start doing things differently. And you know, over the years in the ministry, when I don't see any real change in a person's life, I really have to question what's going on. 
Because when you and I are convicted by the Holy Spirit, when we have a genuine encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, something's got to change. We just don't go on same old, same old. And if a person keeps right on cursing, fornicating, smoking dope, using drugs, getting drunk, watching pornography, lying, cheating, stealing, I'm sorry, there's been no change in the life. And so we can basically come to a conclusion that that person has not yet repented. The Bible talks about showing forth fruits of repentance. In other words, there should be some proof, some evidence in a changed life. So, let's summarize this. The very first thing Peter tells them, what shall we do? Here's what you do, number one, repent. And a simple definition then for repentance is a change of mind, attitude, and purpose, a turning away from darkness and sin, and turning toward God, accepting His will and His ways. Simpler still, change your life, turn to God. And everybody's quick to cling to the grace of God. Oh, say, we're, we're saved by grace. Yeah, but if there's no change in your life, then you haven't tasted grace yet. Oh, no, 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 brother, we're saved by grace, not by works. True, but if it's not real grace, then maybe that's why we don't see any real change. Because in Titus 2, verses 11 uh, and onwards, Paul says the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Okay? But he explains what grace does. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Notice that. It teaches us to start saying no to the ungodliness, to the sin, to the things in our lives that were not pleasing to God, and we start living a different way. So, real grace produces a real change in the life. And Paul goes into this at great lengths in the book of Romans. Don't use grace as an excuse to go on in your sin. That's not real grace. Grace is not meant to be a cover-up so that you and I can continue in our carnality, in our sin, and in our wicked ways. Real grace brings a change. So, the first point, repent. Change your thinking, change your mind, change your attitude, and start turning to God. And that can only come about after the Holy Spirit has convinced you and me that we're sinners. If we're not convinced of that yet, we're not going any further. We don't go any further in this whole process if we haven't first been convinced that I am a sinner. 
If I'm still thinking, well, you know, I'm not a bad person. I mean, I've never killed anyone. Maybe I've never committed adultery. Ah, a few lies here and there. I am kind of proud. I am a little bit selfish. But, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Well, you haven't been convicted yet. And we'll have to pray more for the Holy Spirit to take his sharp scalpel and cut to the heart. Because when he does that, like the prophet Isaiah said when he had a meeting with the Lord, he came undone. He said, woe is me. <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips. He was convinced that despite the fact that God had called him to be a prophet, man, there's something wrong in my life. I need help. I need cleansing. I need salvation. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit starts to convince us. And this isn't a one-time thing. Holy Spirit will keep convincing us for the rest of our life here on earth. He'll convince you of certain sins in your life that maybe you never were able to see or recognize before. And suddenly, you're looking in the mirror and you're like, Oh my God, I never realized I was so selfish. I never thought I was so proud. But look at me. Ew! I need to repent. Well, that's all God is telling you to do. When we're convinced that we're a sinner, the immediate step is repent. Change your life, change your mind, and turn to God. The second thing Peter said, repent and be baptized. Be baptized. The Greek word here is interesting. We've talked about this often. It's baptizo. But it literally means to make whelmed, kind of like the word overwhelmed, to make whelmed, that is, to fully wet, to dunk, or to immerse. The very word does not mean a little sprinkling or a little sign of a cross drawn on your forehead with a few drops of water. It means to be overwhelmed by the water, fully wet, dunked or immersed. That's why real Bible-believing evangelical Christians have adopted water baptism by total immersion. And if you thought you were baptized because maybe when you were a baby you were christened or sprinkled, that is not baptism. That is not New Testament baptism. And you need to seriously consider getting properly baptized by total immersion in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And notice the rest of his words in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Peter was very clear here. It wasn't just certain people in the crowd that were sinners. Everyone there was being convinced or convicted by the Holy Spirit that they were a sinner. And therefore, his message is for every one of them. Every one of you needs to repent 
Every one of you needs to be baptized. Water baptism, by the way, is not an option. It's an absolute essential part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's even included in what we normally call the Great Commission that Jesus gave as he was about to ascend back into heaven to his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Once a person has repented, the first immediate and logical step is to obey the Lord. Remember, we're changing our mind and we're changing our life. We're changing from a life of rebellion and self-will. We're letting go of that and we're now embracing God's will. We're now going to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, but we're also going to start obeying God. And water baptism is a very simple baby step of obedience. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to be a theological expert. Just do it. Get in the water and let the minister dunk you in the water and baptize you. It's a step of obedience. Basically what I'm saying is, God, here I am. I'm turning around. I'm changing the direction of my life, and this is the very first opportunity I have to show you I want to start obeying you. Therefore, I'm going to do what seems to the natural mind a very silly thing, to get into a river or into a tank of water and be dunked. What can that possibly mean? Well, it's a very powerful step in the right direction. And it's not just a ceremony. Colossians chapter 2 teaches that water baptism is the operation of God. God is operating on you. He's working something very deep in your life. And Paul would later teach to the Romans that when we're baptized, we are accepting the fact that as a sinner, I was crucified with Christ on the cross. All of my sins were nailed there. I died to sin, and now I'm being buried in water baptism so that I can be resurrected with Christ, risen to walk in a brand new life. That new life cannot fully begin until we have first been baptized. The old man, that old nature of sin and rebellion that always wants it my way has to be buried with Christ. That's what water baptism does. So, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, once you're baptized, you can start begging God for the Holy Spirit, and maybe after six months, He'll give it to you. No. He said, you will receive the gift. Why? It's a gift. It's a free gift. And the 
The Greek word here, doria, literally means free. This has no strings attached. We don't have to do something to earn it. God is not waiting to see if we're going to be holy enough or righteous enough or any of anything like that. It's a free gift. All we need to do is receive it by faith. It's called the promise of the Father. God has already promised the Holy Spirit for every one of His children. Every true believer who has repented and obeyed the Lord in water baptism, the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you. And some other verses I've given here, if you want to look them up, we're not going to look at them, but uh, the same terminology is found in Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 11, where it talks about the gift, the gift, the same gift that we received on the day of Pentecost, Peter would later say, is what God gave to the Gentiles. That's the same gift he wants to give to you and to me. So, they were cut to the heart. They were convinced of their guilt. Something happened inside of them that awakened this realization. I'm not right with God. I need to change my life. I need to turn to God. I need a change in my thinking, in my attitudes, in my worldview, in the whole direction of my life. It's almost like, um, I don't know if you've had the experience, but I have, where you're driving down uh, a superhighway and suddenly you realize you're going the wrong direction. Well, you need to get off one of the exits and you need to turn around and start heading in the opposite direction. That's what repentance is. You've got to get off the road, turn around, and go in the opposite direction. Because the road you're going on as a sinner is taking you somewhere. It's taking you to hell. It's a broad road. Many people are on it. But Jesus said it leads to destruction. You need to get off of that road, do a U-turn, and get on the narrow road that leads to life. It's called repentance. The very first step in that process is water baptism. Nowhere in the book of Acts do you find that a new convert was told, okay, attend five weeks or ten weeks or twelve weeks of classes and then at the end of the 12 weeks, we'll consider baptizing you. It's not biblical. Sounds pretty good, but it's not biblical. The biblical pattern is, if you've repented, let's find some water. Get baptized immediately. We'll teach you later on what it means, but do it. Just do it. Obey God in the water and show Him that you've changed your mind and you've changed the direction of your life. So, repent, be baptized by immersion in water, that's what the word means, and you will receive the gift, the free gift, literally, of the Holy Spirit. Now, 
He goes on to say in verse 39, The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for all. It's for you, it's for your children, it's for every single believer. And if you're a parent and you have a child or children who are not yet saved or who are maybe not yet walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, start claiming verse 39 in your prayers. God, you said, this promise is for me and for my children. And name every one of your children. Call them out by name. Say, Lord, Johnny, Susie, Mary, they are going to receive the Holy Spirit because you promised it. The promise is for me and my house. It's for all of my children and for all who are far off. All whom the Lord our God will call. Anyone who's been called by the Lord, make no doubt about it. There's no exceptions. God wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit. The gift is for everyone. Now, in verse 40, there's a very fascinating scripture. It says, with many other words, Peter warned them. So, Luke doesn't record all that Peter preached that day. He had a lot more to say. He went on preaching with many more words. Many other words. What did he do? He warned them. And he pleaded with them. What was the essence of this message? Well, Luke tells us, he doesn't record all of the words, but he tells us the gist of what Peter was saying. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. You know, a lot of people have a certain concept about the gospel ministry that we're only supposed to speak nice things and only talk about God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. Well, yes, we talk all of those things. But we also need to warn people. If you see somebody heading into the fire, you're going to warn them. If you see somebody about to go off a cliff and crash their car, you're going to try to stop them. And if we really love people, we'll not only tell them about God's love and the grace of Jesus Christ and what he did for them on Calvary, but we will also plead with them. And we will try to warn them, look, you're going in the wrong direction. If you keep going that way, it's going to harm you. You need to repent. You need to save yourself from this corrupt generation that you are in. Very timely words, I think, for us, because we are living in a very corrupt culture. 
We're living in a very corrupt and perverse generation. And those people that we are trying to minister to, we're telling them about Jesus Christ. We're telling them about His love, His power, His mercy, what He did for them on Calvary, how God raised Him from the dead. But we're also warning people, don't go the way of this corrupt generation. Don't go the way of this culture, because it is perverse. It is corrupt. And you know, hardly a day goes by, and I don't go looking for this stuff, but I just hear things, maybe on the radio or in conversations, but almost every day I hear about some new thing that is happening in the world, and it's like, are you kidding me? How much more perverse is it going to get? How much more wicked are things going to become? And so, I actually kind of wish Luke had recorded more of Peter's words. I wonder what all he said that day. But we know enough to know this. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Now, he had already told them to repent, but apparently he went into a lot more detail. I don't know exactly what he explained, the idolatry, the perverse practices of their day, but he was basically saying, you need to get out of that stuff. If you're going that way, get out. Come out of that now. Save yourself from that corruption. Let me read to you, Uh, from the message translation. Here's how it reads. Peter went on in this vein for a long time, urging them over and over, get out while you can. Get out of this sick and stupid culture. Wow. Get out of this sick and stupid culture. You know, if we're not careful, we can actually start to sort of go along with the culture. And we become almost immune or inoculated to the culture around us. We actually start to think, well, maybe gay marriage isn't that bad after all. Maybe abortion is okay in some instances. Maybe there are other ways to heaven besides Jesus Christ. And we start making these compromises in our thinking, and eventually we get sucked in to the culture. Peter would warn us, and he would plead with us with many words, get out, come out from among them, get out of this sick and stupid culture have nothing to do with the mindset with the attitudes with the beliefs with the philosophies of this modern culture i don't care how popular it is homosexuality is an abomination with god we got to stop playing games it's wicked it's filthy it's unnatural and it's perverse if anybody listening to me tonight is even dabbling with that stuff. Get out. Get out of this sick and stupid culture. I don't care how many of your friends 
are living in fornication or adultery. I don't care if everybody's doing it. It's wrong. Adulterers will be judged by God, and if you don't repent, you'll go to hell. Get out while you can. Get out of adultery. Get out of pornography. If you're playing around, I don't care whether marijuana has been legalized or decriminalized, whatever the stupid words are. It's wrong. <clears throat> it's a drug. Any other kind of drug that somebody might abuse. It's wrong. It's demonic. And Satan uses it to mess with people's minds and to draw them into deeper and darker things. Get out! Save yourself from this corrupt generation. And we could go on and on and on. I think that's why it says Peter had to use many other words. We could address so many things in our culture. False religions, um, deceptions, false beliefs, all kinds of wicked and evil and perverse practices that are especially prevalent among the younger generation. I don't care how popular they are. They're still wrong, and we need to look to the Word of God to understand if God says it's wrong, it's still wrong. Repent and get out while you can. Listen again to these words from the Message Bible. Peter went on in this vein for a long time, urging them over and over. You know, some of the young people, they get so tired of, of some of us over and over telling them, you know, you need to stop that, be careful, don't go the way of the world, don't do what all your friends are doing. Well, that's what Peter was doing, urging them over and over, get out while you can, get out of this sick and stupid culture. So, Peter presented the gospel to them. He let the Holy Spirit convict them. He let them come to him and ask, what shall we do? By the way, I don't see any indication that they played some soft organ music in the background and Peter made an altar call. He didn't make anything. The Holy Spirit cut them to pieces, and they came forward saying, what shall we do? That's the kind of salvation I like to see, when a sinner is cut and convicted, and they come to us saying, my God, what do I have to do to get this right? My heart is burning. My heart is stinging. I need to change something in my life. What do I do? Repent, take baptism, receive the Holy Spirit, and get out of this corrupt generation. Well, pretty strong words. What was the response of the crowd that day? After many, many words, warning and pleading, save yourselves from this corrupt generation, the very next verse, Acts 2.41 tells us, those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000, that's right, 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow. 
A lot of people were cut to the heart. A lot of people were changed that day. A lot of people repented. Because that was the requirement. Repent and be baptized. So it's implied here that 3,000 people listening to Peter, they came under conviction. Their minds, their hearts, their attitudes were changed by the Holy Spirit. They repented. They turned to God. They put their faith in Jesus Christ, and they came forward and they said, We're ready. We want to be baptized. 3,000 accepted the message, were baptized, and they joined the church that very day. Notice again, no time for eight weeks of baptism classes. They took baptism the same day. So in less than 24 hours, this fledgling church of only 120 believers has already grown to more than 3,000. And I know we're not going to have time to finish Acts 2 tonight, but let me just read the rest of the chapter and sort of give a little bit of a preview of where we want to go next time. Let's finish reading Acts 2 from verse 42 to 47. They, that's all of these believers now, more than 3,000, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, if you followed that, just in those few verses, we can see a radical change that has taken place in these people. A radical change. Their whole life has been turned upside down. They're now devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They're, they're devoted now to studying the Word of God. And they're devoted to one another. To fellowship, eating together, praying together. And so radical was this change that took place in their lives, it says that they sold all their possessions and goods and gave to anyone as he had need. And all of these 3,000 plus believers were together and they had everything in common. Whoa, that's radical. And it goes on. 
This affected their everyday life now. Verse 46, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And what happened here is going to continue to happen. The Lord will keep adding more and more people to this group. And by the way, I want to mention it now before we close. I'm, I'm very disappointed in the NIV translation, as I am sometimes. I don't know where they come up with some of their translations. But in verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, except for the fact, in the original Greek, the word that's translated number there, is the word ekklesia. It's the same word that's always translated church. Why they didn't make it church, I don't know, but almost every other translation translates it church. The King James certainly reads that way. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. For me, that's a critical point. Because here in Acts 2, we've been stating all along that what we just witnessed is the birth of the church. Well, I don't know what number means, but I know what church means. And in the original language, that's what it says. The Lord added to the church. So, definitely, by the end of Acts 2, we have a church. We didn't know what a church looked like before we got to Acts 2. Jesus said he was going to build one. The gates of hell would not prevail against it. But we had no idea how to build a church, what a church looked like. But now, we're starting to get some insight into what a church is and what it looks like. It started on the day of Pentecost with the sending of the Holy Spirit, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we're beginning to see at least a a vague picture forming here of the church. It's a whole bunch of believers that are together. They're in fellowship, they're breaking bread together, they're praying together, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, they're loving one another, they're continuing day after day to meet together so that they can praise God, so they can pray together, so they can keep studying the Word of God together, and it's a living thing. It's an organic thing because it's growing the Lord is adding to that church daily those who were being saved. So, a couple of key things we'll end with for tonight, and then we're going to come right back here next time and conclude chapter 2 by trying to make a list of the marks of a true church. We've got a church now, What does it look like? What are some of the ingredients 
What are some of the signs to look for that we have a real church? Well, we touched on a few of them in those verses, but we'll come back to it more next time. But definitely in Acts 2, as we've seen the fulfillment of the Father's promise, they've now been baptized in the Holy Spirit, we now have the Lord adding to the church those who were being saved. Very clearly, the only ones that are added to the true church are saved people. And we know from the context that these saved ones had obeyed Peter's instructions. What shall we do? Well, they repented, they took baptism, and they all received the Holy Spirit. So by the end of the first day, we've got over 3,000 spirit-baptized, water-baptized believers who have changed their life, they've turned to God, they're trusting in Jesus Christ to be their Savior, and so we now have over 3,000 saved believers. Saved believers. God only adds those who are being saved to the church. It's not something where you just fill out a card and you've now joined the church. Joining the church is something that's supernatural. It's done through repentance, water baptism, and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as we move further along in the book of Acts, we're going to go even deeper into this, that the true church is made up of real believers who have been radically changed by the Holy Spirit. First, they were convinced of their sin. They went to the cross in true repentance. They changed their life. They turned away from sin. They turned toward God, toward God's will and God's ways. They responded in faith and obedience by taking water baptism and then by receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And also, they heeded Peter's many other words. We don't know what all they were, but the essence of them was, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. They made a decision to get out of the things that they had formerly been a part of in the culture, in the world around them, that they knew by the Holy Spirit these things were wrong. And I know the very first day I got saved, many things in my life, nobody had to tell me, oh, you need to stop doing that, you need to stop doing this. I knew I needed to stop. How did I know that? The Holy Spirit convinced me. Nobody had to tell me, Wayne, you need to stop cursing. I knew I had to stop cursing. Nobody had to tell me, Wayne, you need to stop smoking marijuana. I stopped smoking marijuana that very day. Nobody had to tell me, Wayne, you need to stop partying and drinking and getting drunk and doing all the things that the world does. I stopped doing that the very first day. I'm not bragging about myself. What I'm saying is if we listen to the Holy Spirit, 
He tells us those things the very first day of our new life as a Christian. Get out of this sick and stupid culture. Come out from among them and be holy. Separate yourselves from the unclean, from the perverse things that are common, that are popular in the world today. I don't care how popular they are. The Holy Spirit will tell you, get out. Stop doing it. Change the direction and the course of your life. So next time, we'll take it right up here and look in more detail. What are the marks of a true church? And what should we be desiring and praying for in our churches if we want to be this kind of a church? So until then, uh, be praying over these things, and let's be asking the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And again, if you have family members, co-workers, friends or acquaintances that you're sharing the gospel with, um, it's not your job to convince them that they are a sinner. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Your job now is to pray for them and specifically claim this promise. Lord, you said when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convince the world of guilt in regard to sin. And then mention that person's name. Lord, convince them. Convict them that they are a sinner and that they need Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. There's nothing else that can save them. Going to church a hundred years isn't going to save them. I don't care what religion they belong to, the religion is not going to save them. They need the blood of Jesus to wash away their sins. No other salvation except that which comes through Jesus Christ. Let's be in prayer that the Holy Spirit will do what He was sent to do to convince the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Let's close in prayer together. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, we love the Word of God. Your Word states that You have magnified Your Word even above Your name. And Lord, Your name is glorious. Your name is holy. But You've magnified Your Word even above Your name. How precious Your Word is to us. God, teach us Your Word. Give us revelation in the Word of God. Help us to love Your Word. Help us to spend time in Your Word so that You can teach us and instruct us and give us clarity of vision and revelation in these last days. God, we thank You for the promise of the Holy Spirit. We thank You that He has now come. The free gift has already been given. And it's for every one of us, every child of God, you have promised the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And Father, for those that we're praying for or ministering to that are not yet saved, we pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to convict 
and convince them of their guilt so that they might be drawn to the Savior. They might be drawn to the cross, asking the same question the people asked on the day of Pentecost. What shall we do? And, O God, we're praying that you would grant many in these last days repentance, they would respond with simple obedience in the waters of baptism, and reach out in faith to receive your Holy Spirit. God, bless each and every one here tonight. Keep us under the blood of Jesus. Keep us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We commit each and every one to the Word of God, the Word of your grace, which is able to build us up, to edify us, and to give us a rich inheritance among all those whom you have sanctified and set apart for yourself. God, we bless you, we praise you, we honor you. Be with each and every one now until we meet again or until Jesus returns in glory. We ask all these things in the matchless, exalted name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.